Yeah, good morning. It is good to see you guys. I mean, that last verse is awesome, isn't it? I want to know you more. Isn't that what we're here for? Amen? Isn't that? I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm excited to be here this morning with you. Um, we are in this series called War Torn. We are working through a, um, just all kinds of uh, aspects of the battle of between us and God. And really asking ourselves, you know, are we willing to, to realize through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and through our receiving that grace, are we willing to stop seeing our lives as a fight with God? Are we willing to live, in a sense, we're literally at peace with God? And, and so war-torn people are exhausted, we're tired, and we're looking for peace, and we're saying that peace has come through Jesus Christ, that peace has been found, and that when you have peace with God, it changes Everything, And so what we're doing is we're examining how this piece has changed so many things. And I realize a lot of things are indeed changing in your life. A lot of things are changing in my life. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that's been radically changing is my kids are getting older. And, and uh, my son Jonathan is in kindergarten. And we had, uh, he's here at the school at the church. And so we had an opportunity to watch him do the, the recital, the kind of their big, uh, their big Christmas production that they do. And it's, it's so much fun because you've got all those kids up there singing as loud as they can out of tune and off time, you know, so I think I wound up realizing one of my kids is the ones that like to sing, like the one that goes in, like everybody's like, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, you know, I think that's like one of my kids, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, singing lessons for him, and so the, uh, it's been kind of interesting, because they're out there enjoying themselves afterwards, all the families kind of hang out in the back, and I'm you know, looking for my kids, and one of this little little girl, one of our friend's daughters comes running up, she's like, I'm like, hey, she's like, hi, what, what, what's up? Uh, Jonathan's been kissing somebody and runs off. And I'm like, excuse me? What, what's going on here? And so we kind of, I kind of hunted down and find Jonathan. I'm like, Jonathan, what is going on? It's like buzzing all through like, the kindergarten, you know, the gossip of kindergartners. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I'm like, Jonathan, what is this? He's like, well, Jocelyn, Jocelyn is kissing me. And she kissed me on my hand and kissed me on my cheek. And I'm like, uh, okay, were you, you know, you're, what's, you know, this is, what's, what is, so we kind of found out what it was, and it's kind of cute for us, it's like, ah, oh, they're five, it's cute, you know, whatever, and we come back a week later, and they're still talking about Jocelyn's kissing me, and we're like, what's going on, he's like, oh yeah, she, oh, she looks at me, she goes like this, <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, and we start working through this, and then now just yeah, two few days ago, it comes up again. We're like, okay, what is this? You know, we're hearing about Jocelyn. And this, we walk up to Jonathan. We get, and it's like, Jonathan, what is it? Are, is Jocelyn still kissing you? No, no, not since Christmas. No, we're like, Jonathan, are you kissing Jocelyn? She, she kisses me. Like guilt written all over his face, and we're like. Okay, this is ridiculous. So, you know, we worked it out. But it just, remind, it just reminded me of the fact that when you're a kid that old, you can't lie about anything and, get, and not get caught. Everything is shown. Because when you feel that guilt inside of you, you know you did wrong. You're just like, <laughs> and you crumble. That was totally me. I grew up, and I literally, anytime I did something wrong, I would crumble and start telling my parents. And I would just want to confess, I feel so guilty. Anybody in here like that? Kind of the guilt-ridden people? Throw your hand up. It's okay. Don't, or if you don't, you better feel guilty. You know, I'm just kidding. The, uh, then there's this other crew of people I've met that are a little bit different than me, they don't feel guilty about anything. Like, they're like, oh yeah, there's that thing called guilt, but you guys feel it way too much. And it's like, when's the last time you felt guilty? I don't know. I don't feel guilt. And literally, 
These are the people who should feel guilt a lot and they just don't feel it. Just ask their wives or the wives because oftentimes it's men who don't feel the guilt and their wives do and the wives are like, you ought to feel guilty about that because they feel the guilt for them. And and this is just kind of these two groups of people. Anybody married to that person? And, And you know what I'm talking about. There's this reality though that both sides are dealing with guilt. A lot of men and a lot of women who don't want to feel the guilt do so because oftentimes when they do, they feel like I have to do something about it or, you know, it's not that big of a deal. There's something about the idea of guilt itself that drives them crazy. And so they they close themselves off. They hold themselves back. They don't feel it. And so there's this reality of feeling guilt about everything and not feeling guilt about anything. But we're all dealing with guilt. We're all dealing with this concept of guilt and some of us are dealing with these, these trials in our minds and, and, and all this stuff that's going on. So you could be somebody who feels guilt and it's crippling you. You're hearing me talk about God wants to use you. He wants to show you what your passion is and you, and you ought to be living that out. But it's this war that we're in that causes us this guilt and causes us to be crippled. I'm not usable by God. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you feel literally like because of the things that you've done, there's no way God could possibly use you. There's no way that you could possibly have a good kind of life or whatever. Others of us are running around going, I don't feel guilty now about nothing, and I should. And and you're thinking, I'm doing God's will, and everybody else around you is going, if that's what God's will is, I don't want to be near it. Because we're just incapable of admitting where we've done wrong. We're incapable of, of dealing with where we're wrong. And maybe it's because we don't see it, and maybe it's because we don't want to see it. But the bottom line is, whether it's guilt on either side, it kills the ability to do what God's called us to. And this guilt has come because we've been at war with God. We've been in this fight with God. And so now that we have peace with God, this peace changes everything. And we're going to look at how this peace changes our relationship uh, with guilt and what we can do about that. So open your Bible up, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 18 and move forward into verse 21. So... I think we're going to enjoy ourselves today. If, if you don't have a Bible, they're under the seats. You can grab one, pull it out, join with us. It'll be on page 942 there, and the Bible's under the seats. Or if, you got, um, if you're using your tablet or something like that, you can uh, join with us. We're using the ESV version if you can get a hold of a Bible on there. Now, Romans is written by a man named Paul. It's one book in a collection of books that we call the Bible. And this is a letter that he wrote to the people of Rome, to, to the church in Rome. And Paul was a missionary coming to Rome. He's going to present the gospel in Spain. He's saying, hey, I want to start somewhere. I want to launch off from Rome. Here's what I believe. Will you support and, and help me out? And so that's what this book is. And so it's very theological and it's very deep, and, it, and it's very clearly about the gospel. And in chapters one through four, he's been explaining what this gospel is, that it is the work of Jesus Christ, and in, that he has borne our sins on the cross, and that we just have to trust this promise. There's, you don't work for, you don't do these things, but you trust this promise. And then when you receive it, what we've just discovered in this section is that it transforms everything. It brings peace with God, and that peace allows us to go through hard times with God with us, instead of fighting God. Thirdly, it winds up changing our relationship with God so we're actually reconciled and not not actually um, battling with him. And last week we noticed finally that we're dealing with God in a new way. That our, that our past is over. That we were associated with this, with this one family called Adam and Adam's family. Not the da 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 Not that family, but a different Adam's family. Adam and Eve. And that the guilt and the condemnation and the sin has been changed when you move into Christ's family. And so he's going to sum this up in this last, four verse, last few verses here, uh, five verses, and we're going to kind of tease this out and look at it. So verse 18, if you'll join with me. 
Therefore, as one trespass led, speaking of Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by, one, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, namely Christ's work on the cross, the many will be made righteous or right with God. So he starts here and he goes back to this definitional difference that we worked on. That there's this Adam side and then there's Christ side. And guilt is found over here when we're dealing with Adam and we're dealing with our sin. And this guilt arises and leads us in directions where we're unusable by God. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we deal with the guilt? What do we do with it? And some of us who are resistant to guilt need to start here. We need to start by conceding simply that man is, is sinful and guilty. That's where we start. We concede that humans are sinful and guilty. And we think, wow, what a start, man. That's, that's ridiculous. But look at what Paul is saying. He, he's saying something far more harsh and far more sharp than I'm saying it this way. He says, therefore, one, the one trespass, one man's sin, Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. And so we're all guilty. That word condemnation means a, guilt, a guilty verdict in a court. It means you're guilty. You've heard the judge say it. And then he goes on to say his disobedience, the many were made sinners, which is the idea that we can't hit God's target. We just keep missing when we don't want to. It's kind of a rebellious heart. And so we see that there's this reality that human beings are sinful and guilty. And I think the reality is best seen, and I don't think what I'm saying is too harsh, because when you turn on the news every night, it reminds you of that fact. It's the one thing I don't think we can really deny. That wherever evil exists, where real evil is happening, there's a human associated with it. That what you discover when you open on the, turn on the news or when you have a child is that people are messed up. And you're a child? Child, you're so innocent and silly and cute. Yeah, but you don't teach a child to lie, do you? Anybody sent their kid to lying courses? You don't send them to disobedience school. You send them to obedience school, you know? We, our parenting is all about how to help children do what is right. How we lead children to live out the, the right kind of good living. But we're naturally messed up. We naturally figure out how to lie. We naturally figure out how to disobey our parents. We naturally figure out how we can steal something. It comes into our heads. Why is that? I mean, I would love it if my kids came out and said, I, have, I figured something out, Dad. What's that? I figured out how to obey you. Wouldn't that be awesome, parents? <laughs> That's not going to happen. Humanity is, is, is bent. We're sinful. We're guilty. And I think just seeing these couple of things helps us begin to realize that we just need to concede this, but our society doesn't want to. American society literally wants to say, look, human beings were born good. What messes people up is the inner animal. And if we could control the inner animal that evolution is, has been transforming humans into, you're still dealing with your ape side. I've heard people say this kind of stuff. That literally what's going on inside of you is the ape is coming out, the animal is coming out, and you need to control the animal. But ultimately, it's, in, it's not evil. You're just following your instincts. And so you have this reality that we, we've just kind of said that the problem with evil isn't, there is no problem with evil. It's your instincts. Or some people have gotten a little bit more sophisticated. And in the 1900s, we, we heard people say stuff like this. It's, it's not that humans are evil. It's that everybody's born good and society messes them up. Something in society gets a hold of them and messes them up. Be it economics, be it, a, be it a certain set of rules, be it a certain group of people. Something, it's in something in our society. 
So if we could just get rid of these things and change the rules and improve society, humans will stop doing these kind of things. And so you have the utopian movements like communism and certain forms of capitalism that have come out trying to claim we have the answer to all society and the woes of man and the pains of man through government and through programs. Then you wind up with another group of people who run around, and this is more akin today, that literally when people sin and do stuff, it's not so much that it's evil or wrong. We just go, well, I made a mistake. My kids do this. My, my, my kids will literally, they'll, they'll start horse playing and wrestling and doing all this kind of stuff. And inevitably, somebody comes in crying. <laughs> what happened? He hit me. And I'll get the kid who him. What, what happened? And, it, and it's so funny because they all do the same look. Like, it was an accident. And I have to reteach them, your fist doesn't accidentally form a fist. It doesn't accidentally fly through the air. It doesn't accidentally hit your brother. It's not an accident. You did it on purpose. It was an accident. But that's what we're saying. We don't sin. We just make mistakes. Because we don't intentionally try to do evil. It just winds up being not what we intended. We always do good. just doesn't always wind up that good. So we made a mistake. Well, I don't think any of these arguments work real well when you're, facing, when you're facing it. And I hope this has never happened to you, but imagine with me that somebody's daughter is, is hit by a, by a drunk driver and you're there to watch your daughter get hit by this drunk driver. And you're, you're, you're weeping and hurting and the drunk driver, fine, stumbles out of the car and looks over and sees what's happened and goes... Oh, oh my goodness. And in a wave of guilt as it hits them, that you look up at them and say, what did you do? He says, don't look at me. Society trained me to be a drunk. It was my upbringing and all these things that happened and that's why I'm here. It's not my fault. It stumbles out of the car, sees the scene. What did you do? It was an accident. I made a mistake. It was a mistake. I've learned from my mistake, okay? So we're good. Really? Stumbles out of the car. I was my inner animal. I just followed my instincts and I'm sorry. Dog eat dog world. I had the car. She didn't. That's how life is. I don't think we're satisfied by any of our attempts at answering the question. I think we're fooling ourselves. I think when you see that scene, you know someone did evil. That human beings don't accidentally do things. We intentionally do most things. And that all of us are sinful and guilty at some state. That humanity is this way. We at least start there. Because if we're not going to go there, we're not going to admit guilt. We're going to feel guilt, but we're not going to admit it, or we're not going to know what guilt really is. All this stuff's going to go on. We're going to think it's mistakes. We're going to go through this stuff. But the bottom line is all of us are sinful, and all of us are guilty. And then you've got to get to the next step, which is hard. You've got to confess the reality that you're per- of your personal guilt. And this, is, this isn't easy. But think about it for a minute. If we're willing to concede that all humanity is messed up, then the Bible is stating at least, I'm personally that way. Notice what he says in verse 18 again. And I'm going to point, point out something this time. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. You read that right. God's looking at Adam's sin gave everybody a guilty verdict. And then he goes on. For by one man's disobedience... The many, that's all of us, were made sinners. 
Does that sound fair? That God's going to look at Adam and he's going to go, yep, all you guys are guilty. Adam sinned, guilty. We go, that's not right. That's not how it works out. And so I want to hold on for a second with that thought. Hold it there. Because if you're a Bible lover, if you love reading the Bible, you need to know this when you read your Bible. If you're about to explore reading the Bible because you're curious or you're a skeptic or you just want to tear it apart, then, then be sure to read it with this in mind, that the people of the ancient Near Eastern world thought completely differently than we do. We are Americans, and they were a radically different culture. In fact, our culture is so different than any of the ancient cultures, they wouldn't have even understood us. You see, I stand up here as an individual representing me. And yeah, maybe I represent the church, but all of us think of ourselves as individuals. Say it with me now, we're all individuals. I'm just kidding. Wait for it. The, um, the point is simply that all of us view ourselves as individuals. I make my own moral choices, I make my own decisions. I do, I, I'm not condemned by anything else around me. It's me. However, the ancient world looked at very differently at human beings. They looked at it a lot like when our, when our mom got, or our dad got up and that wonderful morning and, or afternoon you came home to school and you heard the, that, that mixer moving. And you're like, oh, cookies. And you come rushing into the kitchen. They're, they're pouring the chocolate chips in. You're watching each one fall and you're going, yum, yum, yum. And you go over there and you probably, hopefully you did what I did. You'd, you'd beg mom, can I please have the mixing spoon? Can I please have, I want to I lick it. That's how much we want this cookie dough. And you're going, that's gross. Well, I wanted that, but eventually you got a piece of the cookie dough. And we weren't scared of salmonella and we weren't scared of all that because we were allowed to eat the cookie dough back then, raw eggs, I know, and all that stuff. But anyway, so <laughs> totally another conversation with the younger people. You'd eat that cookie dough and you'd sit there and go, that is good cookie dough, right? You would just, oh, it's so good. And, and my skeptic says to me, my American skeptic says, hold on a second. You only had one piece of that cookie dough. How can you assume all the rest of the cookie dough is as good as that one piece you just had? Americans only think this way. See, the rest of the world looks at it and sees that one piece that they ate is kind of equated to the whole. Because all the ingredients make up that one piece. And so when you taste it, you say, oh, that's the whole thing. So when they met you, they would, they would assume things about your family because they got to know your family through you. They would assume things about your village because you represented the village. You represented your culture, your people when you showed up. And so there's this part to whole mentality. You are a part of the mix. Now, it changes our minds. We realize how sensitive we are to this when you start realizing that after you ate that cookie dough, your mom's like, no. Like, why? This is for my enemies. I put cyanide in it. And you're like, if it had anything in there that's undesirable, it doesn't matter how small the piece is, you wouldn't eat it. Because you know whatever was mixed into the cookie dough is probably in that piece. You see, Adam, when he sinned, mixed into the batch of humanity an ingredient that is so horrid and so awful, God looked at the whole batch and said, no good, guilty. It's what Adam introduced into the batch of humanity that causes the whole to be spoiled. And that's what it's saying. And when, he, when they look at Adam, the one who introduced humanity, brought it all in, it's what he put into it, he put into the mix that is, a, that is spread through everything and is mixed into the whole batch and therefore it is not good. 
condemned. It's been made sinners. And while that seems unfair, I think God knew it was unfair. He moved on. Paul moves on. He says, now the law came, verse 20, to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He says, it came to increase the trespass. Well, why this word trespass? Why not sin? The word sin means to miss marks with the arrow. Trespass literally means to step over a line on purpose. And just like Adam purposely stepped over a line, God brought this thing called the law in for, some, for a purpose. You've heard of the Ten Commandments. And a lot of people think that the Christian life is walking around trying to live up to every single commandment all the time. Living up to it. Living up to it. And that's, that's the law. And we're supposed to live by that. And you know what? The danger of that reality is, is that that totally shifts the entire Christian message. That's not what Christianity is about. And if you came here thinking that church and Christ is all about all these rules and all these laws and stuff, hear me. It's not. It's about a relationship. We'll get into that in a minute. God introduced the law for a purpose, to show us how much sin we actually do. It was not to make us right with God. If you'll read the beginning of the Ten Commandments, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He's saying, we already have a relationship. So these Ten Commandments have nothing to do with keeping a relationship with me. They have everything to do with how we relate together. And so when you start looking at it, it starts to reveal how messed up we really are. Let's just take two of them. You ready? Honor your father and your mother. Oh, did you have to go to that one? Because nobody here has honored their father and their mother perfectly. Obeyed everything that they've asked. Walked with them. All this stuff. You know. But here's the thing. We're missing the point of the law. The Ten Commandments do not specify an action you shouldn't do. They're literally taking you to the worst action you can do in a category. So when it says you should honor your father and mother, to break that is to, be, is to do the most heinous thing you can to the relationship when it comes to authority. You see, your father and your mother is your most intimate authority. They're your most intimate people who stand over you and, and instruct you and lead you. So if you're willing to insult and rebel against your parents, what's going to keep you from doing that with God? What's going to keep you from doing that with your principal? What's going to keep you from doing that with the police, your government? You keep naming it. The worst case scenario is that you do that to your parents. I mean, there are some criminals in this world, but even they will phone home on Mother's Day to honor mom. But to be the kind of person who would be willing to just tell mom off and leave them alone? The Bible would consider that one of the worst, the worst end of this. But all, this, all the stuff under it is encapsulated. And when you start looking at all the other stuff, you start like a list starts forming in your head. Yeah, I remember what I did to that principal. Oh, I remember what I said to that teacher. Oh, I remember what I did to, to, to that officer. And, uh, 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 and your list starts growing as you start thinking of all the rebellion we've had and all the things we've done. And you start realizing, wait a minute. This isn't just humanity's problem. This is my problem. Let, let's take a second one. Maybe we should take the first commandment. Love the Lord. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. And you step back and you go, this isn't about any God. This is about the God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Exodus, the God of the Jewish people, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not just our invented God. Their God, we're supposed to not have any other gods before him. We're supposed to love him and him first and foremost. And, and how many other things do we give our service to? And we give our money to, we give our hearts to in a way that we hope they'll help us in the way God's been told, that he's told us that he will help us. That, we, that we'd be a fan of before God. 
We'd be ready to root for that before we'd ever stand up and root for God in a service. That gives you a real good indicator. There's a lot of things in my life that start going bing, 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 bing. That list gets huge, doesn't it? And if you're a guilt-ridden person right now, you're going, I feel so guilty. If you're not a guilt-ridden person, you're going, yeah, so? Well, I know, what, what is this? I'm just trying to reveal that we all are in the same boat. We all need to be able to confess our personal guilt. The reality that, yes, humanity is this way, but we all have these things we've done. And what confession does is it opens you to the reality of who you are. For some of you, you've learned to confess. You're the, if you're like me, you're guilt-ridden, and you confess all the time because what it does is it removes the emotion. And you're like, I feel better. I've said it. I got it off my chest. And we're all good because the emotion of guilt is gone. But imagine with me we're at Nuremberg trials. After World War II, they lined up all the Nazis they could find and pulled them together for a court tribunal at the end of the war. They gathered all these men together, and one of them named Hermann Göring sat down. He was the architect of the Nazis after Hitler. And he sat there and confessed to everything that he did in front of that trial, and he felt no emotion about it. Now, did they all go, well, he doesn't feel guilty. He's free. Yay. Thank you for killing millions of Jews. Is that what they did? No. They said, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter that you confessed it. You know who you are. You're still guilty. You see, guilt has more to do with the act than the emotion. When we've done something wrong, it sits in our past and it stays there. And it stays guilty. If we're going to be used by God, Yes, we have to deal with the guilt. So I say confess it, allow it out. Let the emotion of a guilty conscience be removed by the confession to God about these things. But if you are really clear about what's going on, you will see how all the things we've done line up as a list of guilt. And what do we do with that? Because that's in the way. These are war crimes against God. These are things that we've done against him. And we're going, how can God use us when we're guilty? And so while we, can, can, while we can concede that humanity's messed up and we may confess, we have to move on to something else because there's no amount of doing good that's going to clear that list up. In fact, you may begin to think about it and it's rising high, as high as like a sandcastle that touches the moon. Huge and daunting, every grain of sand being a sin. And maybe you're thinking, that's not me, but as you start thinking through it, you're going to realize that. What do you do with that? Well, what you do with that is what we've already learned. You apply the peace with God. You see, we have peace with God. It changes everything. Look at what verse 20 says. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And it's as big as these sandcastles. But where sin increased, grace superabounded all the more. And that's really what it's saying. Overwhelmingly abounded. It's like a wave, a tidal wave from the ocean of God's grace came crashing in and swept your sandcastle away. And even though it was as high as the mountain, nothing could overcome this wave of grace. And that's what we're looking at. And what we need to be able to do is receive the grace. It's called a gift throughout the chapter. And it's a gift that comes to us of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And so this is not something that you achieve. This is something that you receive. You can't go earn God's grace. Grace is literally unearned. It's literally given freely. It's just poured out. It's not something you go, I want to get myself cleaned up here. And I'm going to stop cussing. And I'm going to stop smoking this. And I'm going to stop smoking that. 
What they're saying is just turn away from loving these things and love, run after God and hope and know that through Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of all the things that you hold on to as, your, as a guilt. Yes, you're guilty of tons of things. You're guilty of thousands of things. So am I. But God's grace over and above super abundantly pours out. I guess the best way to put this is that grace isn't for good people. It's for forgiven people. Grace isn't for good people. You may think you're a great person. You may say, my list is really small. You still need grace to wash it away. We still need grace to overwhelm us. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of church going. There's no amount of rule following. There's no amount of rigid, stringent things around us to protect us that can ever keep our hearts from sinning. We need grace. We need to overwhelm us because of what Adam threw in the mix. We need it to superabound. There's no amount of sins that you can commit that God can't cover with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's through his love, through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, as he took on our guilt that should that that gives us his grace and should blow us away. I remember growing, I remember um, George Bush and after 9-11 sat up there on, um, on television, looked out at the American audiences and explained the strategy for going into Iraq and what they were going to do, Iraq, Iraq, whatever. Iraq. Anyway, so he's standing there, and he says, we're going to do this thing. He said, shock and awe. And that was whatever, you remember shock and awe. Everybody heard shock and awe, shock and awe. And it was supposed to be this psychological warfare where they just blow things up as big as they could and as massive as they could. They're going to shock and awe. All these people were blowing back the Stone Age. You heard all that stuff. God's grace is so magnificent, so powerful, it is the first shock and awe that was supposed to shake us up. When you look at the cross and you think about what was going on, here was a man who was beaten to the nth degree, spit on, drug his own cross all the way to a hill, sat there crucified, and you would have to sit there and watch it, and you'd go, ugh, awful. You'd be shocked. But nothing compared to when you realize he wasn't just suffering a torturous death. He was suffering because God took up the guilt of our sin. And Jesus, who had willingly gone to the cross, bore it for us. And the punishment that was supposed to be ours, he got in the way and took it on. And as he suffered under that weight of our punishment, it was awesome. And it shocks us that God would be a man, let alone that God would live on this earth with sinners, let alone God would take up our sin on himself. And it was awful because we see the very reality of what our sin takes to be dealt with. So that when we confess, we come to realize, I have no way out. And we're overwhelmed by how much God would love us. And grace covers us and our sins like a wave if you receive Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be shock and awe. And it's going to humble. And it's going to be hard to receive. Because who gets gifts like that? Who gets to have all their mess and every horrible thing you wouldn't want to tell your mom taken away and dealt with? So that in eternity it's not even brought up again. Except that Jesus bore it for you. It should bring us shock and awe. 
even more, that grace continues to flow after the initial transformation, after the sin's been dealt with, after the guilt is gone. It overwhelms us in a new state. Look at how he goes on. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why? So that as sin reigned in death, this is why, so grace also might reign through righteousness. Let's, let's, let me reword some of this. That grace might also rule through the right standing with God that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying is that once you've received this flood of grace, you are made right with God. And now that you're right with God, you're reconciled with him. You and God can talk. You and God can be near. God, in fact, takes up residence in your life by the Holy Spirit. And he gives you something called righteousness. So you walk with God. And as you do that, you start to experience Experience something that will be there with you forever. It's called eternal life. Now, a lot of people go, wait, eternal life is something that happens after death. No. Everyone's going to live eternally. Some are going to live eternally in heaven. Some are going to live eternally in hell. But everyone who comes to Christ begins their eternal life today. Because eternal life is not about a duration of time. It's not about how long you live. It's about the quality of life that you live. It's about a blessed life. See, the only being that's ever had eternal life was God himself. And it's an eternal blessing. And when he reconciles with us and he comes and lives in us by his spirit, we begin to experience the very eternal life as God works through us. It manifests itself in different ways. But it's started now. It's like an infection that's growing until a full born into eternity as we live out in the resurrection. We'll talk about that more next week, but I want to point this out, that this means we can have a different mentality. If you've received the grace of God, and it's overwhelmed you, stop dwelling on the laws. Stop beating yourself up because you don't follow all the, rules of G- all the rules and all the stuff. And start dwelling and pondering and reflecting on your eternal life that has started now. You have it now. And so here's some simple things. Put your mind on the things above. That's what, he, that's what Ephesians, oh, sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 is kind of referring to. Notice, if you've been raised with Christ, that's somebody who's a Christian. Seek the things that are above. What is that? Where Christ is, see the right hand of God. Seek out that life, that way of living. Seek it, hunt it, search for it, put your mind on it. Don't let it go. And then so you want to sit down and reflect on your blessings of eternal life, the things that are happening now. Let me give you a few examples. God answers your prayers. Shouldn't you be celebrating that? You're going, I don't pray. You should start because he wants to bless you through answered prayer. He blesses you through the reflection of what you get in the word of God. You're relating to him. He teaches you about himself. And you go, this is incredible. And you live it out and then it actually works. And you're going, that's even more incredible. And you reflect on that fact. You reflect on the, on the camaraderie and the family unit that surrounds you and how people have come in to help you out and give you aid and guide you forward and how you've been able to help somebody else out and guide them and give them aid. This is all part of the eternal life where we're serving each other. We know why we're here. We know what we're doing. You know what you've been called to do and you do it and you get to do it and it's not a burden because it's your passion. You see, guilt's done. What's going to hold you back from running after whatever God's given you to do? And you go, oh, I messed up. Oh, Christ, oh, you did that. Get up. If he disciplines you, he disciplines you. But he's going to get you up, and he's gonna, his point is to keep you moving towards the eternal life that's already yours. 
towards the vocation and the calling and all of the stuff that can be yours, the victories over sin that are just waiting around the corner, the joy of the worship and the passion of giving away the gospel, all of this stuff is ours today. Now, reflect on those. Think back on those blessings. And then finally, reflect on your future of heaven. Too many of us don't think about heaven because we got a bunch of bad ideas about it. We're going to correct those ideas in the next series. So stick around, but not today. We're not going to do the next series now. But, you know, come back next week and we're going to be launching into those conversations. But too many Christians think too much about the law and the rules and keep beating themselves up with all the things they've done wrong, ignoring the grace that's overwhelmed all that sandcastle so that you have an opportunity to go off and surf in the waves of God's grace, enjoying the eternal life that he's given you now. I think the simple, simple way of really doing this, if you're a guilt-ridden person, is what a, a, a young man, a young man, he was older than me, whatever. This, this guy who, who's part of our church came in, and he was just really excited about what God's been doing in his life here at Olive Branch, and just he, he just had to tell a story. He sits down, and one of the things he started talking about was he had a friend who had sat him down, and he was just feeling guilty, but he knew, he knew it. And his friend said, here, here's a piece of white paper. I want you to do something for me. Write down all the things you feel guilty about. So he wrote them all out on a blank white piece of paper, and then um, said, now mark the ones where you've actually done wrong. He started checking those things off. A couple he didn't. He says, these two here, that you feel guilty about? These were done to you. You don't have to feel guilty about those. Forgive it and move on. And he was and walked him through that process. Then he said, now you see the rest of these? Flipped the paper over. Flipped it over. He's like, what's that? What do you see? A blank white piece of paper. He says, that's what the blood of Christ does. You're forgiven. Those things are now in the past. Start living with a new sheet of paper. And his eyes glowed as he was just so excited about what God was putting together in his life because he had been released from his guilt through the work of Jesus Christ. Christians, hear me. Live with your eyes to the future for the joy of the grace you've been given. We all have a step we need to take. We all have something we need to do. And so maybe it is today that you need to just receive that superabounding grace again. Remind yourself of it. Maybe it's that you need to literally begin to reflect on your, on your blessings and reflect on heaven and focus on that eternal life that you've been given. Discover what your passion is and do it. Or maybe it's you need to concede and confess. Whatever it is, I want you to take this challenge. What step do you need to take today? Which one of these? Concede, confess, receive, or reflect? Don't wait, but do it. Would you bow your heads with me? You may be here this afternoon and you're a, you've been brought by a friend or a family member. And right now you're beginning to realize, wow, I didn't realize how much guilt was piled up in my heart and my life. Maybe it's becoming brought out to the front. I hope so. Because it's, that guilt is not there to condemn you. It's there to show you where you're at and to show you that there's only really one way to deal with it 
Yes, you can go and you can argue its mistakes and all these other things, and you have the right to do that. Or you can go find another religion that's going to give you a bunch of rules to release this guilt from you, but you really know it can't. Or you can receive God's gift. God has given you his son Jesus to bear that guilt on the cross. To take it and all the actions that are associated with that guilt and have it dealt with finally. Then Jesus rose from the dead to give us a chance on new life and to have that relationship with God, to be reconciled with God. And this morning, you can begin that walk with God. You can begin that life with God by simply receiving the overabundance of grace. Don't believe the lie that you sin too much, that God can't use you. He wants to use you, and his grace is so huge. Don't wait to go clean yourself up and come back and receive Jesus. He wants you to come as you are. And he wants to walk with you as you watch your life transform. Is simply asking you to turn away from the things that are holding you down and the sin and all the stuff and turn to God and receive his gift. If that's you this morning and you know you need to receive that gift and you would be willing to do so this morning, willing to receive the gift of God's son, Jesus on the cross, to bear your guilt and set you free and have a relationship with him, if that's what you would like and you're ready to receive it, would you just put your hand up? I want to pray with you. Awesome. doesn't matter your age. It just matters if you know that you need that forgiveness. If you're there and you're ready to receive that gift, you just simply pray this prayer with me. And again, the prayer doesn't save you. But it's your, it's your trusting God that does. So you say, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. And I have so much guilt because of those things. I ask that you would forgive me. I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I trust you've forgiven me. I trust that he rose from the dead and that you've given me a new chance on life. Would you please come into my life and lead me from here. I want to know you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.